Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and it's been a minute since we convened, and safe to say, much has changed since then, and we have a lot to catch up on, and much to discuss today and in future episodes. The voluntary hiatus was for many reasons, but in contemplation of the breather, it was surely a period of personal and increased anger and exasperation about so much repugnance abounding. From ineptitude, corruption, and hatefulness runneth over from the highest level of government officials to avert racism and police brutality and misconduct taken center stage amid an increasingly deadly virus sweeping across the country. While that anger still persists profoundly, it's high time to channel it, to get back to what we do here at Across the Margin of the Podcast, where we have the weighty and important conversations that we truly must be having while sprinkling some fun and some music and entertainment and literature along the way, of course. But before we get going, I'd like to make one thing clear, and that is I and the whole team at Across the Margin stand in solidarity with those across the world protesting for equality against police brutality and institutionalized racism and injustice. I say this because taking a stance and making that stance known matters now more than ever. It's pretty wild that in 2020 that something so uncomplicated and true as the idea that black lives matter has to be declared again and again, but it sure does. Black lives matter. Today, we are here to discuss a few ideas that persist within the important movement and discussions occurring across the country, and that is the need to defund and to possibly disarm police forces. I have, time and again, witnessed an aversion to the phrase defund the police, most often and unsurprisingly, from those who benefit most from little or no change to the status quo. Personally, I believe this idea holds water, a great deal of it, and can lead to critical and groundbreaking changes in the country. As I alluded to, many can't stand the idea, but I believe that may be because of a lazy knee-jerk reaction to the thought. And with even a simple look into the nuances of defund the police, you can easily see the benefits of the notion. So, what does defund the police mean? Well, it means just that. Defund the police. But it doesn't mean when you need help and make a call to the authorities, you can't get help. It means services appropriate to that call will be sent to help you. This requires divesting, i.e. defunding, from unnecessary and, frankly, ridiculous militarization of the police, divesting from police and schools, and criminalizing mental health. It demands that every state, city, and municipality spend less on law enforcement and incarceration and, here's the kicker, invest in the communities instead. Invest in teachers and counselors. Invest in mental health and restorative services. Invest in community-led harm reduction. This idea truly gets to the root of the ills affecting communities and people across the country. Instead of throwing more money to police the problem away. An institutionally blatantly flawed and clearly overfunded. Another idea that must be explored is to disarm the police. This idea is one I explore with zest in this episode with my guest, D.D. Guttenplan. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. He previously covered the 2016 election as the magazine's editor-at-large and, for two decades before that, was part of its London bureau. His most recent book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority, has just come out in paperback. D.D. recently penned an article called 
It's time to disarm the police. And in it, he discusses the link between racism and policing, now and throughout the country's history. He cites examples where unarmed policing is working and overall offers a thoughtful alternative to policing that can truly save many, many lives. So, let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Didi Guttenplan. Thank you again for making the time. I love the article. I love everything you guys are doing at The Nation. Um, you're, um, you open your article pointedly uh, mentioning um, a group of recent uh, shootings um, uh, that you know, have ignited a national conversation in America. The, the murders of uh, Richard Brooks in Atlanta, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, Tamir Rice in Ohio, just to name a few. And uh, it seems to me you believe that these cases make it clear that um, all these that officers in general should not be allowed to uh, carry guns. That's right. Yeah. Well, this is something that's percolating in me for a while. I was actually I was in Cleveland when Tamir Rice was shot, and I just remember what a gut punch that was to the community. Uh, and you know, we there I list some names in the first paragraph of this piece: five people who've been killed by the police in just the last, you know, year. Yeah. Uh, but the, <laughs> I had to cut people out, you know, yeah. I'm, there's I'm, more. Yep. I mean, just because I think it's particularly relevant in this moment, I was rewatching do the right thing the other day and remembering Michael Stewart and Eleanor bumpers. And, you know, I, I lived in New York then I worked for a newspaper. I covered those shootings. So, you know, it's, it's been on my mind for a long time, but, what it was was watching that video of Rayshard Brooks being shot in the back, and I just thought those people shouldn't be allowed to carry guns. Yeah, and you know something broke through, and then also I'm you know we're talking now. I'm working remotely, editing the Nation uh, from London, where I lived for many years. I don't live here anymore, but I'm here for the moment. <laughs> and uh, and you know the police don't carry guns here. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's a big city, yeah. and it's multiracial, and it's uh, multicultural. And not only that, but in the 70s and 80s, they had a big terrorism problem here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because of uh, the history with the IRA. And yet they managed it without giving guns to all the cops. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the pushbacks that I got after this piece came out is uh, it was as if people thought I was saying that that British cops are perfect and that American mm-hmm. cops were like British cops. Yeah. And I do think American cops should be more like British cops in not having guns. Yep. <laughs> but look, I've, I've been on demonstrations where the police have beat up demonstrators mm-hmm. here. I've been on demonstrations where I've been kettled by cops. Oh yeah. Right. Yep. I, you know, I've had horse mounted police charge at me on horses. You know, if, if you're, my generation, you remember the great song by Tom Robinson, uh, Glad to be Gay, which begins, the British police are the best in the world. 
He's being ironic. Okay. You know, he's talking about the fact that they would beat up gay clubs and, you know, raid gay bars. And yeah. uh, so it's not a brief for the British police. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an argument that says if American police, particularly in big cities where guns are already illegal, New York City has very tough gun laws. Yeah. So most people in New York do not have guns, mm-hmm. you know. Your neighbor is freaking out upstairs because either they, I don't know, they got some bad pot or they just had a bad day or whatever, and you hear the shouting, you can call the cops, but you never know whether they're going to come and kill your neighbor. You know, if they didn't have guns, you wouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Yeah, And I like that example. I do want to ask a little bit more about London in a bit, but I do want to talk a little bit about history because you note how with... um, early policing in America in the colonies and up until 1838 in Boston when um, volunteer watchmen were replaced by professional police forces. Guns were not in play. What was it that first uh, led U.S. police to carry guns? What what, what happened there? That's that's really interesting. And that was, you know, I I learned about that as I was researching this piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I knew it was possible for the police not to have guns, but I didn't know the history of when they got guns. And what's really interesting is that the history of armed police in America is intertwined with the history of racial subjugation, that um, the volunteer police in New York, Boston, Philadelphia didn't carry guns. When they were replaced by professional police, they didn't carry guns. They might have carried a short club, uh, but that was it. But the slave patrollers in Charleston, who were the first armed police force in the U.S., they carried guns. They did. They always carried guns. Because their job was to keep the slaves in place, keep them down, prevent them from organizing, prevent them from revolting, and and capture escaped slaves and return them. Yep. Uh, you know, and those were all things that you you know, if you're trying, if you're essentially a minority trying to subjugate a majority, uh, which was the case in most of the slave South, uh, you need to be armed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the the. It's interesting. The term that they use in England for policing here is policing by consent. And what happened in America is as policing became not by consent, that's when police started to carry guns. So first in the South and then in the 19th century after the Civil War, as urban police forces became increasingly involved in breaking strikes and putting down workers. Then they then they needed guns too. Yep. So that was so, the case so in New York City, right? Isn't that what when New York absolutely. police started getting uh, weapons? When was that? That was a uh, like late. Well, 1890. City, it's interesting because this is you know there's a you hear a lot of talk uh, even among liberals about reforming the police, mm-hmm. and it was a reform Republican mayor uh, in the days when the Democrats in New York were corrupt and the Republicans were just uh, oligarchs. Yeah. <laughs> but not corrupt. Oh, that's it William re- Strong, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He he issued he his police commissioner, Theodore Roosevelt, issued oh, yeah. they issued guns to the NYPD. They they issued pistols. That was the first time that police were officially issued with guns. And so the idea there was not to protect themselves but to uh defend capital from um, exactly. the claims of labor. That's right. That's, that's wild. Absolutely. So the, the the two ideas we're talking about are whether they were given guns because they were, you know, it was slavery and the enforcement of racial racial subjugation, or uh, you know, to control, um, you know, labor claims. That's that's wild to think about. Well, it's it's wild, but it's true. Yeah, 
<laughs> Absolutely. So let's get back a little bit to London. So what's the percentage of police force? I mean, do they have police that, that carry guns there? Of course they do. Yeah, they have, of course. Uh, you know, they have uh, what you would call in America, you know, or I would call in America. They have what we would call in America, <laughs> a SWAT, you know, a SWAT team, an armed yep. response unit. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because after the 7-7 bombings here a few years ago, you know, when uh, – Islamic radicals blew themselves up on uh, tube trains, uh, you know, and buses. Uh, The police shot a guy, uh, John Carlos de Menezes, a Brazilian, who, in a case of mistaken identity, he had had done nothing wrong, but he happened to look like somebody they had a description of, and and they shot him, in in fact, in an underground station. Why do I remember his name? Because he's the only person the police have shot here in the last 10 years. Wow. That's wild to think about. That's crazy. So, um, and I hate to keep turning to you like you're our, uh, you're my London expert uh, right now, um, just because I'm fine. trying to explore the, their ideas there. I mean, is there um, that you know of an investment in um, alternatives to policing? Because a lot of what we're talking about here with the funding, the funding of police is, you know, when you call, you, someone else will come. That's not a not an armed police officer. Is that something that they focused on? Well, no, because the police are the police aren't armed. So, yeah. you know, for example, I live near a park, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, two or three times there's been somebody who was clearly in distress in the park. Either they had too much to drink, or you know, they were on a bad trip. I don't know, but yeah. I, I called the police. The police come. Often it's a man and a woman. They're not carrying guns. They talk in soft voices. They're patient. Uh, you know, they're police, they're not social workers, but they are kind of trained, they're trained in de-escalation and they're trained, you know, to to listen to people and to connect them to social services if they need them. You know, again, I don't want to romanticize the no, no. police. Yep, absolutely. But, there's, but those but differences there's, those differences are so, so crucial and it does come down approach, to, what, go on. Yeah, the approach is completely different. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, you... You don't have to be a psychologist to, to understand that if you have a gun in your back pocket, you behave differently than if you don't. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. So I'm thinking um, that just, you know, in thinking about America and thinking about culture, that culture is going to be a big problem in overcoming, um, you know, th- this uh, idea that America's love affair with guns is, is, is all too real. Do you, um, do you see this as a huge in- impediment to... Uh, Disarming the police or getting people behind well, yeah, this idea. It's funny that you you put it that way because uh, some some of the comments on social media are like you know don't you know that Americans have a lot of guns yeah. like what kind of idiot for you so uh, probably ten years ago I made a radio program for the BBC called uh, Guns and American Love Affair <laughs> so and it was all about you know the role of guns in our culture and the history of that and. And uh, and I live part of the year in Vermont, where almost every one of my neighbors has guns. a gun. Yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, we're not talking about taking guns away from hunters mm-hmm. uh, or from farmers who use them for you know to to control varmints, uh, or even you know from people who are paranoid and feel the need to have one in the house if they live in an isolated place. I mean, I know plenty of people. You know, if my if my house catches fire, it'll burn down before the fire department gets there. Yeah. And you know, and if there are baddies with guns, you know, the cops are never going to get there in time. Exactly. But I don't own a gun. Yeah. 
Yep. Uh, but I, you know, my plenty of my neighbors do. That's fine. What What's different is that yes, there are too many guns in America. Too many people have guns. We should try to do something about that. But in New York City, in Boston, in lots of big cities, guns are not legal. You know, Washington D.C. is a great example. Yeah. Strong gun control laws. You know, so. So the argument that the police need guns because everybody and their brother has one isn't true for these places. Yeah. And it would be so radical. It might even redeem all of his broken promises if Mayor de Blasio <laughs> might. said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to take guns away from the NYPD yeah. Yeah. Uh, because that'll do more to stop the police from continuing to murder, you know, young African-American men. Yep since it is mostly men and it is mostly African-American mm -hmm. and many of them are shockingly young, um, then anything else we can do. So we're going to do that. Yeah. And we'll, and, and, you know, we can always change course, but mm -hmm. wouldn't it be amazing to do that? Wouldn't it be amazing for, for a mayor who really cares about racial justice mm -hmm. to put that out there, take that chance, and see how it works. I just love, you mentioned the word I, radical. I love that we're, you know, I loved reading your article and seeing that and just that these discussions are being happen, and happening because, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an important moment where we're having the chance to sit back and, and you know, reimagining what could be. And, and, you know, this is, disarming the police is something that, that I really think should be in play and in the conversation. Where, where are you on um, the idea of defunding the police? Because these are two different demands. There are two different demands, and it's very important for me to say uh, that I don't see them in competition with each yeah. other, that I support defunding the police, mm -hmm. uh, that I think that's a demand that has been put out there. The, the lead in that has been taken by African-American groups and activists. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're right. We've run – the nation has two cover stories on defunding the police and the same issue as my editorial. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also uh, I think, you know, that that it's not as in a sense, not just a white person, but a reasonably prosperous white person who who benefits from having armed police. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's on me to speak up and say no. Yep. No, so, I, I agree completely. And I, I just love the idea of, of, of reinvesting, use, using that money. I mean, I'm, it's the police are looking exceedingly more and more like a, a military unit and an invading well, that, force. You know, that's the other thing. Uh, you know, we publish stories that point out that in lots of cities, Houston, for example, the police department is 30%, 35% of the city budget. Yep. Uh, you know, in Chicago, it's the same practice. It's amazing. It's crazy. You know, these are not cities. These are police forces yeah. that have a few social service agencies yeah. <laughs> attached. Now, actually, New York is better. Mm -hmm. New York, it's about eight percent. Okay. Um, so it's it's a smaller percentage, uh, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't. You know, they are way overarmed. Mm -hmm. Even you know, even if you leave their handguns, they're way overarmed. And all police departments, uh, starting after the Nixon administration, started getting essentially all this military equipment. And you know, you show up with a gun, it means one thing. You show up with a gun and body armor, it means something else. Yeah. You show up with a gun, body armor, and a, tank. And a freaking tank. Yep. Whole different ballgame. Are, are, are you really there to help? Yeah. Are you really there to listen? No, you're yeah. not. You give certain people some toys, they're going to want to use those toys, too. Yeah. yeah. This is a well, that's, you know, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I'm just, uh, and, and thank you for, for this article and for talking about it. I really, uh, like you said, they're, they're, they're two different ideas. We're hearing a lot about defunding the police, but they're also bedfellows. And I think I, I really wanted the idea thrown in the mix. I just, I actually think it's beautiful. I think you can um, police. And, and like you said, in cities where there's, there is good gun control um, without being armed. I really love the idea. Uh, to flip it just a little bit, um, I was I was wondering if you tell our, our listeners a little bit about your uh, recent book, um, the Next Republic, Republic: The Rise of the Radical Majority, which um, I uh, stated in the intro to this. It's now available on paperback. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure, uh, it came out in paperback. It's a book that grew out of uh, my reporting in the 2016 campaign and the Sanders movement, and where that energy was partly going. And also it comes out of a long-standing interest in what I would call popular front politics, uh, which is essentially a view of the left that doesn't that says you don't all have to agree on the same things, but on the things that you do agree on, let's work together. Uh, and also it's a kind of an argument for um, uh, what I would call, uh, and people can dump on this if they want, a left populism. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that what, to me, what happened in 2016 was that there was a lot of populist energy in the U.S., you know, thanks to Occupy, basically. Yeah. A lot of people woke up to in economic inequality, injustice, the fact that we live in an oligarchy, and that the oligarchs are just getting fatter and richer all the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, the only party that even talked about that was, was the Trump Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, that's really terrible. I mean, you know, it's like, you're 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 sick with a deadly disease, and one person offers you you know uh, patent medicine, and the other person says pull up your socks. Well, you'll probably go with the patent medicine. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help you, but at least they're pretending to be interested in your problem. Yeah. And you know, so so it's part. So it's about that, and it's also a historical book. I mean, I <laughs> I actually am kind of a historian, and uh, as well as a journalist, and and what's interesting to me is that. There's always been a populist current in American history, you know, from the Revolutionary War. I mean, when you think about it, uh, you know, there were people who fought in the Revolutionary War and expected to completely overturn the British social order, and they didn't get that. And some of them weren't happy about it. And in fact, as I say in my book, the Whiskey Rebellion that happened in Western Pennsylvania was a kind of, that was Alexander Hamilton putting that down and basically saying, no, America's going to be a country which acts in the interest of the rich. But they people pushed back, you know, and, and the Civil War, in a sense, you know, what was the greatest concentration of capital in America in the 19th century? The slaveocracy, slave owners. And why would somebody, for example, from my state, from Vermont, where there had never been slavery, it had never been the only state that had never allowed slavery. Uh, so plenty of people in Vermont never had never seen a slave. And yet Vermont had the highest rate of enlistment per capita in the Union Army of any state. What were they, what were they fighting for? They were fighting for overturning this social system, which was you know, built on the backs of black men and women, but that also sustained this economic oligarchy that they knew was unjust and that they knew hurt them. Uh, so you know, these things, it doesn't go away. They, they suppress it, but they never get rid of us. And I guess what I felt in 2017 when I started working on the book and 2018 when I was writing it and 2019 when it came out in hardback was that I could feel this energy building. Now, you know, clearly 
We came short this time with Bernie Sanders, but then the book is not about presidential politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, Sanders was important as a vehicle. He's a lovely guy. I adore him, but as a vehicle, a message, but not, you know, it's not all about him. It's about the movement. And, and, you know, Biden is clearly irrelevant to the movement, except in so far as we can make him listen to us. And, you know, we, we probably can make him listen to us with some more efficacy than we can make Trump listen to us. Yeah. Although we can make Trump listen to us too. You know, if there are big strikes, as seem to be happening in the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, with people refusing to go to work if they thought it was unsafe, mm-hmm. that may be happening now with teachers unions across mm-hmm. the country saying, no, we're not going back unless you guarantee spending enough money to make it safe for us to work. You know, I I feel like this energy is there. The wave is building. So there's a chapter in my book about Chakwe Antalamumbo, who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what was interesting for me and challenging, you know, is that I think a lot of people, a lot of white people are now rethinking our role in the the racist system that has been in place in America for hundreds of years. And I think... You know, doing that involves a lot of listening, and it involves listening to people who aren't trying to make you feel good. No. <laughs> and I felt, I felt that, you know, to me, that was the, the best place to do that is Mississippi because the conditions are so extreme and because the people there have been fighting for so long, and they don't bullshit you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but the the reason that that I thought it was really important me, for me to go there and listen to people is because this is not you know despite what some Bernie Sanders supporters sometimes said this is not oh if we can solve class we can solve everything mm-hmm. and this is not oh if we could just have racial parity we could solve everything these things have to be solved together they do yep. Yeah, I speak a lot about climate change and just I love that I'm seeing a lot of talk about the interchange between uh, racial justice and, and climate change. Because, I mean, you're right. Absolutely. A lot of these things are so bound together. Yeah, the, I, I need to grab this book. It looks like there's a, uh, a whole bunch of incredible, important activists in it that, um, that you highlight, which is really, really cool. Uh, before I let you go, this is way out of left field, but I really want to ask. I saw when I was doing a little bit of research on you that you... Um, back in the 80s, when you were working in politics there, you were behind uh, drafting uh, the bill to name a portion of Central Park Strawberry <laughs> Fields. And uh, any fun anecdotes there? That's a, that's a fun legacy to be a part of. That's cool. Well, it is. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's be fair. I, I wasn't behind it, but I did draft the bill. <laughs> yep. Um, that's, fact. that's a fact. So I, yeah, I, had a, I had a menial job working for a politician mm-hmm. in New York. Uh, He's dead now, uh, so I guess I could mention his name, but I probably won't. Um, Anyway, uh, he was a great Beatles fan Mm -hmm. and also an opportunist. And my job was basically to think of ways to get him favorable press every day. That was was really what I was supposed to do, you know. Anything else I did was extra. I drafted bills, came up with suggestions, that's fine, but, you know, what are you going to do to get me in the papers? And his view was almost the day after Lennon was shot, let's, let's rename Central Par- a portion of Central Park near the Dakota Strawberry Fields. So it was his idea, cool. uh, but, you know, I had to do the grunt work, yeah. and I'm proud of it. No, that's, that's fun to be a part of it. Um, and this was fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I love you uh, pushing this idea further out there in the world, and I love you uh, talking, talking about it right here. So thank you very much. 
It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Let's talk again sometime. Absolutely. Definitely. podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com